Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Toronto, 1954. The Pylon Theatre, located in the heart of the city's neighborhood of Little Italy, was packed with kids for its Saturday matinee. On the bill that afternoon was Tarzan and the She-Devil, starring Lex Barker and Joyce McKenzie. The film ended, and the credits rolled. The lights came up in the theater. A bespectacled ten-year-old boy, David Cronenberg, sitting dead center in the theater, began to gather his things. He stuffed what was left of his sugar babies in his mouth, crumpled up the box, and tossed it on the theater floor. The movie had been a bore. For a Tarzan movie, it conspicuously lacked action. Just another ivory hunter baddie, and Lex Barker was no Johnny Weissmuller. Young David walked out of the theater, wishing he still had that 50 cents in his pocket. He would go buy a few Tarzan comics instead. He stepped out onto busy College Street and stuffed his hands in his coat pocket to protect them from the crisp fall air. As a streetcar passed in front of him, Something across the street caught his attention. The studio theater was letting out its Saturday matinee. The studio was a movie house that catered to its neighborhood by exclusively showing films from Italy in their original Italian. As excited youngsters hopped up on goobers and jungle adventures streamed out around them, young David looked on at the exclusively adult crowd that was leaving the theater across the way. The mood was strikingly different. Over there, it was somber. There were some women even crying. Many were crying, in fact. Up to that point, David could remember crying during a movie, sure. When he saw Dumbo, he was gutted as Mrs. Jumbo cradled her son from between the bars of her enclosure. Something about what was happening across the street was different. When he saw Dumbo, he was six, and these were adults, and they were stepping into the light of a Saturday afternoon with tears running down their cheeks. It was a peculiar sight. Dodging traffic, he sprinted across the street to investigate just what was affecting these grown-ups. He looked at the lightbox and saw a painted poster that featured circus performers. There was a trapeze artist and a strongman, and most predominantly, the face of a weepy-eyed girl looking up at the heavens. David read the title on the poster, La Strada. He tried to commit it to memory. He also scanned the other text. Anthony Quinn he recognized. Julietta Messina and Richard Basart didn't mean much to him. But there was one name that loomed large. A name that warranted its own typeface. Federico Fellini. 
It was a name that stuck with David for the decades that followed. Fellini had been able to create a film that could reduce adults to tears, shamelessly so on their part. For the first time in his first decade on Earth, David Cronenberg stood in awe of what power a motion picture can have. From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we dive into the history behind your favorite Canadian content. This is the first episode in our new series on the career of filmmaker David Cronenberg. Over the next several weeks, we will delve into the early career of one of Canada's most celebrated filmmakers. We're going to get sticky. We're going to get gooey. From shivers to Videodrome to The Fly... David Cronenberg carved out an international reputation as the thinking man's horror director and the godfather of body horror cinema. This is episode one, From the Drain. This evening, WGR-TV will preempt its normal schedule, so we may present the following special program. I can feel you pulling things around in there. It's a brand new organ. Never before seen. May 2022, the south of France. David Cronenberg sat in a packed theater as part of the Cannes Film Festival. It was the premiere of his 20th feature film, Crimes of the Future. In the film, Viggo Mortensen plays a performance artist who has his organs operated on in a pseudo-sexual ritual in a dystopian universe. At one point in the film, there is a graphic child autopsy. It's typical Cronenberg fare. But at that Cannes screening... Audience members began to bail. One after the other, they decided that Crimes of the Future was not a vision they were willing to indulge. Dozens of audience members gathered their things and made a hasty retreat out of the theater. But as he watched on, seeing the silhouettes break for the exit, the 79-year-old filmmaker remained unflapped. He was no stranger to walkouts on his films. Even at Cannes, where he once served as a jury head, he was a controversial figure. Crimes of the Future certainly isn't for everyone, but it is the next chapter in a dialogue that David Cronenberg has been having with audiences since his earliest days as a filmmaker. Let us not be afraid to map the chaos inside. He was born in 1943. His mother Esther was a professional pianist, working with choirs and dancers. Eventually she would carve out a 30-year career at the National Ballet of Canada, and accompanied the likes of Rudolf Nureyev and Eric Brun in rehearsals. His father, Milton, was a journalist and philatelist. That's a stamp collector. He wrote a stamp column for the Toronto Telegram, and even wrote detective fiction in his spare time, contributing short stories like Toronto's Double Cross Death and Death for $100 to publications like Famous Crime Cases. During the Depression, up to the year before David was born, Milton ran a bookshop on College Street, among many other things, Cronenberg Sr. was also a bibliophile. Growing up, the corridors of the Cronenberg home were so tightly packed with shelf after shelf of books that young David didn't realize that those weren't real walls at all. David's older sister, Denise, was a dancer, and he, by his own account, was a dilettante. That's not to say that he wasn't dedicated to his interests, but they came fast and furious. And his parents supported whatever captured his attention 
whether it be collecting and studying moths and butterflies or seriously undertaking the classical guitar for several years. As a teenager, David became interested in underground novels by the likes of William S. Burroughs and Henry Miller. At the same time, he was reading science fiction anthologies and the work of Isaac Asimov. I believe that if there's such a thing as God's word, it's rationality, and I have the call to spread it. He even began to write his own stories. When he was 16, he wrote a short story about a disfigured handyman who possessed the ability to project himself into his most prized possession, a painting of a Parisian cafe. Proud of this piece of writing, he submitted it to a few anthologies he enjoyed reading and even received a response back from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It was a rejection letter, but an encouraging one from the editor asking him to continue to submit future stories. When it came time to go to university, David enrolled as a science major at the University of Toronto, but it was an ill fit. He found himself drawn to the humanities side of campus, away from the science and engineering buildings. He was fascinated by chemistry, specifically biochemistry, but was uninspired by the passionless way in which it was taught and studied. He was interested in things like the physical basis of human thought and imagination. What was the chemical process happening in Burroughs' brain when he was writing something like Naked Lunch? You know how old people lose all shame about eating and it makes you puke to watch them? Old junkies are the same about... When he hung around with English, philosophy, and history majors, David found friends that were crazy, passionate, well-read, and excited about everything he was excited about. By the end of his first year, David dropped out of his science degree and re-enrolled as an English major, with plans on becoming a novelist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cannes Film Festival 1966. A 22-year-old David Sector found himself sitting across from Italian bombshell Sophia Loren, head of that year's Cannes jury. Sector was there to show his film Winter Kept Us Warm. Oh sure, we uh, we cut each other up and we boast, we we act like we own the residence and the college and the president's pet poodle. So big deal. We don't know anything. We never do anything. What are you talking about? Winter Kept Us Warm represented a lot of firsts. It was Sector's first feature, it was the first mainstream LGBTQ film produced in Canada, and the first Canadian English language feature to premiere at Cannes. David Sector accomplished a lot with his $8,000 indie film. At the time when films just weren't made in Canada outside of the National Film Board, he had managed to eke out a narrative feature, something that the NFB had ruled out almost at its very inception. And he somehow finished it without support from the arts councils. 
Winter Kept Us Warm was shot on campus at the University of Toronto and featured a cast pulled from Sector's cohort. One person in particular whose head was turned by just the mere existence of Winter Kept Us Warm was newly enrolled English major David Cronenberg. When he saw Sector's film, made independently, shot on locations he knew quite well, and even featuring friends in its cast, it revealed to him the world of filmmaking. Up to that point, for 22-year-old David Cronenberg, making films was the purview of Hollywood, and Italy, and maybe France. To see something made in Canada, and made by a peer, well, that made an impression. At the time, the University of Toronto had no film program. Film was still a vulgarity, pop entertainment. The seventh art wasn't recognized in Canada. So, David learned about filmmaking the same way he had learned about biochemistry, or lepidopterology. He looked to books, first turning to the Encyclopedia Britannica for its entries for lens, film, and f-stop. He bought back issues of American Cinematographer, from which he gleaned enough about the filmmaking apparatus that he felt competent enough to make his first short. That winter, armed with a 16mm Bolex camera, Cronenberg, along with his co-producer Stefan Nasco, sound recorders Margaret Hinson, and actors Rafe McPherson and Mort Ritz, trudged out into a snowy country field to shoot a six-minute short about a psychiatrist who was pursued by his patient. It was What About Bob, if Samuel Beckett had written What About Bob. Rob is destructive, Doctor. I never denied that my love for you was destructive, but I can't be sorry. Can you understand that? Understand, understand, always understand. And then his follow-up, From the Drain. Every week I come here. Every week. Exactly the same thing. You come looking for... Each film only cost a few hundred dollars. These had more to do with New York City's experimental film scene than they did with anything happening in Hollywood at the time. Toronto, 1966. A hot day had turned into a hot evening at CineCity, the 260-seat movie theater that occupied a former post office. It was a less-than-ideal location for a cinema. Its low ceilings meant that raked seating was out of the question, creating bad sightlines for just about every ticket-buying customer. The venue belonged to Willem Poolman, a Dutch-born lawyer who used the theater as a testing ground for foreign and experimental films he was looking to distribute in North America. That night, CineCity was the venue for a 45-hour-long event called Cinethon. For the entire weekend, film fans could watch some of the most interesting experimental films from New York City, films by Andy Warhol, Jonas Mikas, and Joyce Whelan. Filling out the local contingent were films like Red Path 25, directed by John Hofsis, and Transfer by David Cronenberg. Cronenberg sat in the smoky screening room as an audience watched his first film. Already, he was looking at it through his fingers. It was not well made, he thought. He hoped that the label of experimental would buy him some grace for the production's technical inadequacies. I mean, all the films in the lineup suffered from that gap between intentions and execution. But at the time, David was only privy to these feelings as they related to his own film. He couldn't see it as the audience did, and he feared that they may be able to see what he saw when watching Transfer. Despite this, he was proud to have a piece he directed in the lineup. It was 5 a.m. when David stepped out of the theater and onto Young Street. 
he found himself in a small group of filmgoers taking a stretch in the wee hours of Sunday morning. He had a croissant and sipped a coffee. There was still more show to go. But as he stood there, one of the other guys in the group turned to him and said very matter-of-factly, I dug your film, man. David smiled and thanked him. It was his first good review. Follow up his first forays into experimental filmmaking, David Cronenberg wanted to expand his canvas. Transfer and From the Drain had been made for a few hundred dollars each, shot on 16mm, the format of hobbyists and documentarians. He had fulfilled nearly every role in their productions, and they were short, just sketches of ideas he had. He was resolved that his next film would be as long as it needed to be, and he would shoot it on 35mm film, the medium of professionals. Shooting on 35 wasn't cheap. There was a reason most of his peers opted for 16. His first gambit into finding financing was to hit the Canada Council for the Arts. There was just one snag. There wasn't yet a funding stream for filmmakers, so he improvised. Falling back on his literate upbringing and his former ambitions of becoming a novelist, he submitted a grant proposal to write a novel. He would later say in an interview, I invented this whole Nabokovian novel that I was going to write, did a spec chapter plus plot outline, and got three notables to back me. It's a familiar shell game for many artists, and for David, it paid off, because the council awarded him $3,500 to write his novel. He promptly took that money and established a line of credit at the local film equipment rental house, and began making his next film, Stereo. Stereo didn't start with a screenplay. It was a film found during its making. To save money, it was shot without sync sound and on black and white film stock. Cronenberg and his crew made it on the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus over the summer holiday. The film is about a group of young adults who, through a surgery, developed telepathic powers, a narrative conceit that rationalized the cost-saving use of voiceover. The members of this group are subjects of an experiment by the Canadian Academy of Erotic Inquiry stars Ronald Lodzik, who was himself a gay academic that inspired the 26-year-old David Cronenberg. Ronald is capable of portraying an incredibly exotic, strange creature who's not quite earthly and, and in terms of the gesture and, and the sexuality he projects. Uh, he's disquieting to an audience. In those early movies, Lodzik was a kind of Bowie-esque muse, one he would continue to use over his next several films. For its part, stereo proved to be important for the young filmmaker. Shot on 35mm and running a respectable 65 minutes, it was his first feature-length film, if just barely. But all of this meant that the director could make a run at film festivals. According to the book Cronenberg on Cronenberg, there were two self-financed screenings of the film in Adelaide, Australia and Edinburgh. It showed in Montreal and Ottawa, after which a moneyed transportation tycoon invested in the distribution rights to the picture, which led to further screenings, including one at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. As described by Chris Rodley in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, Stereo can be characterized by its long, static, panning or moving shots in which characters wander as if they're in a dream. Robert Fulford, editor of the magazine Saturday Night, saw Stereo and under the pen name Marshall Delaney, 
gave it a favorable review, calling it an elegant dream. And he would do the same for Cronenberg's next effort, a feature entitled Crimes of the Future. This is CFMT, Channel 47. I am Adrian Tripod, the director of this place, the House of Skin. In a sense, my present incarnation was generated by the mad dermatologist Antoine Rouge. The House of Skin. Crimes of the Future shares a name with Cronenberg's latest film, but they aren't connected. The original Crimes of the Future was again shot on 35mm. But this time, the filmmaker sprung for color stock. It's not a narrative film, but another experimental effort. I'm not interested in summarizing the film. The story doesn't matter. More than anything, it's a tone piece. It's available in its entirety on YouTube for those who are curious to watch it. Again, Cronenberg wrote, directed, and produced, and edited the film himself. It was shot without sync sound, and instead features a voiceover that's dripping of academic gobbledygook. In fact, the narration is often more interesting than the visuals, perhaps underlining the filmmaker's initial ambitions as a novelist. At the time of its release, film critic Robin Wood observed that if you turned off the sound on Crimes of the Future, large sections of it looked like, quote, a gay fetish porn. But, more than anything, it's a very sleepy film. For anyone out there who studied movies in school, It's one of those films that your professor showed in a 10 a.m. lecture that induced the head bobs as you fought against your own impulse to just sleep. It has a Sahara-level dry sense of humor that could be overlooked because of the experimental film trappings. This science fiction film of sorts takes place in the aftermath of a plague that killed off the entire population of sexually mature women. In many ways, it's the urtext for the filmography to come from David Cronenberg. When I look at a person, I, I see this maelstrom of organic, chemical, and electron chaos, volatility and instability, shimmering, and, and the ability to change and transform and transmute. Following his foray into experimental filmmaking, David Cronenberg took a year off. Off of school, off of making movies, off. He traveled to Tourette-Solou, a village in the south of France. It wasn't an area totally divorced from film. It was known to be frequented by André Bazin, film theorist and founder of Cahiers du Cinéma. Bazin also coined the term camera stylo, a precursor to auteur theory, which saw the camera as a kind of pen and the director as a writer in light. Young Cronenberg, who used the camera to write his films up to that point, spent the better part of a year in Tourette-Sulu, continuing his life as a dilettante. He sculpted, making, quote, surgical instruments for operating on mutants. That May, he traveled to Cannes to attend the 24th Annual Film Festival. 1971 was a strange year for the Cannes Film Festival, It presented the last vestiges of the classic era, while ushering in something new. 
At that year's festival, Charlie Chaplin received a Lifetime Achievement Award. It is so wonderful tonight, and naturally, I'm with this great honor. I am uh, very much moved, and uh, I doubt whether I can speak intelligently or not. <laughs> While Kitty Wynn won for Best Actress for The Panic in Needle Park, Al Pacino's feature film debut. Ashton, I'm a dope addict. I heard that before. Why do you give me something new? I'm a sex-crazed dope fiend. <laughs> the Carlton Hotel, just steps away from the water, sported a three-story cutout of James Bond. It also housed the festival offices of the Canadian Film Development Corporation, who agreed to let young Cronenberg sleep on their couch. He spent a few days at the festival, but the boy from downtown Toronto found himself overwhelmed by the glitz and glamour of the French Riviera. The Rolls Royces, the Julie Christie's, the Milos Foremans proved too much for him, and he fled back to Tourette's. While back there, he licked his psychic wounds and had a conversation with himself. If you're going to do a real movie, you're going to have to deal on some level with what the Cannes Festival represents. He decided in the moment not to take it so seriously, to enjoy the amusement park nature of it all. Moreover, it was at that point that David Cronenberg made the conscious decision to move from the role of filmmaker, the author of impenetrable experimental films, to that of a movie maker. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It is co-produced by Sanjay Jamidi with additional voices by Matt Barnett. This was episode one from The Drain. In our next installment, we continue our series on David Cronenberg with Orgy of the Blood Parasites. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps get the podcast noticed. We're available just about everywhere else. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. In researching the show, I relied heavily on two books, Cronenberg on Cronenberg, edited by Chris Rodley, and David Cronenberg, interviews with Serge Grunberg, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian media ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. And if you want to watch the films mentioned in this episode, from The Drain, Stereo, and Crimes of the Future are all currently available on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and until next time. One of the reviewers I read this morning in going through your, your life's work said that it made him physically ill to watch the, the... But reviewers generally are not big Cronenberg fans. Uh, well, they, strangely enough, they are in other countries. Maybe that's not so strange. I knock about the media original. Hold on.